Thank you, Lindy, for that introduction. And thank you also for welcoming me in your center. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and also very grateful to be able to talk to you about what on earth we are doing in Belgium right now with the euthanasia law. So, uh, so I'm a sociologist, as Lindy said. Uh, I'm not a medical practitioner and I'm not a bioethicist, but um, I have been uh, informing the bioethical and the medical debate with the empirical data that we have been generating since a number of years now. So I'll be, I will be telling you about uh, our most influential study, uh, the end-of-life decisions study um, in Flanders, in Belgium, and hope to mitigate some of the concerns that are uh, certainly um, present in the international debate. So for those of you who don't know where Belgium is situated, uh, it's literally across the world, across the globe, uh, centrally located in, in the heart of Europe, uh, and actually formed historically uh, as a buffer between the then warring countries, Germany, France, and uh, the British. And as a result, we're actually a patchwork of language communities. We have a, a German-speaking community, which is uh, in, in blue on the map. We have the, south, the southern Wallonian uh, French-speaking region. And we have in yellow the Flemish-speaking uh, or Dutch-speaking Flemish region. Uh, and important for this talk is that most of what I will be telling you uh, is data on the, on the Flemish region. But incidents, incidentally, that's also where the most development is happening in, in terms of euthanasia. So I will just go over the Belgian laws on end of life. So not only euthanasia law, uh, we also have an, extended, an extension law to minors and uh, as a knock-on effect of the euthanasia law, accompanying laws on palliative care and patient rights. I will also shortly touch on the need for monitoring before I go uh, into our empirical research, which, which is the end-of-life decision wave surveys. I'll explain the methodology very shortly, our conceptual framework very shortly, uh, and go into the main findings and trends. And then we can have a general discussion. I will shortly, again shortly, explain uh, where these main trends have been coming from before we go on to the million-dollar question, which is, is Belgium on a slippery slope? Um, and I know also that Australia mostly comes into contact with Belgian euthanasia via the media and via highly publicized fringe cases, which are actually at the boundary of the law and maybe, uh, well, a misrepresentation of what is really happening in Belgium. So the 2002 law on euthanasia defines euthanasia as the act of ending life by a physician at the patient's explicit request. There are substantive requirements that the patient needs to fulfill, and there are also procedural require requirements that need to be fulfilled. The substantive requirements say that the patient must be of adult age or an emancipated minor. This is the 2002 law. So an emancipated minor is someone who does not longer have um, a legal guardian, so perhaps when you get married at 16 years old, you, are, uh, you no longer have a legal guardian. The patient request must be voluntary, so uh, originating without any external pressure, 
must be well considered, uh, repeated over a series of different co conversations with the physician, and also should be in writing. Patient must be fully informed about his or her health condition and prognosis. And this is the core of our euthanasia law in Belgium. The patient must be in a medically futile state of constant and unbearable suffering. Now, this suffering can be physical, but it can also be psychological suffering. And the suffering has to be caused by a serious and incurable condition. So you will probably note that the word terminal is not on there. So the patient must not necessarily be in a terminal state or a terminal condition. And uh, the suffering should also be without prospect of improvement. And that's actually saying that according to the physician and the patient, there are no reasonable treatment alternatives to be pursued. So as you see, the Belgian euthanasia law is fairly liberal. It's not uh, confined to terminal suffering. It's not confined to physical suffering. Uh, it's broader than that. Then on to procedural requirements. Uh, the physician has to consult with a second independent physician who has to assess the patient and whether the patient uh, qualifies or is eligible for, uh, for euthanasia. And that's actually the control mechanism that's put in place a priori, so beforehand, before the euthanasia can be performed. And there's also control afterwards by notification uh, to the Federal uh, Control and Evaluation Committee for euthanasia. Now, in case of a non-terminal illness, there are some extra requirements, uh, being that there's a third physician that needs to be consulted who is an expert in uh, the disease. And also, when the uh, request is granted, there should be a one-month waiting period between the decision and the performance. I just wanted to give you a little bit of context and background as to, as to the decision, decisions made at that point. Um, so at, at that time, there was high public demand, as I understand there's now also in, in Australia. Uh, but we were also, at that time, um, we had a progressive government in place composed of socialists, liberals, and uh, the Green Party. So the conservative parties were uh, shunned at that moment in time. Research had also shown that life-ending acts were actually happening before any legislation was in place. I will shortly uh, show that uh, in, in the coming slides. And this euthanasia law was actually part of a larger drive towards more openness in medical practice, not only end-of-life practice, but medical practice as such, and to provide legal frameworks uh, for the protection of patients and physicians as well, uh, for patients to be able to exercise their autonomy and to encourage uh, also for the medical uh, practice uh, standards for careful decision-making. And another explicit aim of the legislator was to place the decision-making for euthanasia and the practice of euthanasia firmly within the medical realm. So decision-making was part of the patient-physician relationship. Uh, performance must also be by a physician. Uh, that's why the law actually doesn't support physician-assisted suicide. 
But on the other hand, the physician organizations were against it at that time. So essentially what the legislator said was, society wants this, uh, we are going to uh, enable it and you must go along with it as, as medical professionals. So the 2014 law extension to minors uh, lifted the age limit altogether. Now I know that uh, just this phrasing uh, can be met with a lot of, with a, with a lot of apprehension, uh, but the rationale behind it is, is fairly simple and, and fairly well widely accepted in Belgium. So the age restriction actually refers uh, as a proxy to the competence of the patient. But when we're when we're putting competence or capacity of discernment as uh, the main determining factor in the, uh, the eligibility of a request, why not look at the competence itself and not refer to age to, to say that the patient is, is eligible or not? So that's a very simple reasoning, which uh, is often not picked up when the media reports it, of course. So it's also just a matter of principle. It's not like there was any uh, evidence that, that uh, like with adults, um, that patients or minor patients were being killed off or, or anything. No, to date there's been no report uh, of a euthanasia case for a minor, not before the law and not after the law. Of course, again, extra requirements because they're an especially a special uh, patient group. So Euthanasia can only be performed in case of terminal illness and unbearable suffering, physical suffering. There is an extra consultation needed by a child psychiatrist to assess the competence. And parents should also be uh, included in decision-making and consent to the decision. Together with that, like I said, the knock-on effect was a law on palliative care and also a law on patient rights. Uh, the law on patient rights actually only made explicit what was already implicit. Um, so the, the rights of patients to, uh, to decide about medical treatment and no treatment can be forced against their will. And the law on palliative care really came from the reasoning uh, that you can't uh, enable the practice of euthanasia while not supporting the development of palliative care because there could be cases where, uh, where patients could really be helped by palliative care and if that were absent, then euthanasia, uh, uh, well, the decision to, uh, to go over to euthanasia uh, would surpass the possibility of, of palliative care. So the legislator decided to, uh, uh, to enact a law for the structural embedding of palliative care in the healthcare organization, so that in every care setting, so in every hospital, in every care home, uh, and, and, and in home care, uh, there is a palliative function. There's, they also ordained that there is universal access and to palliative care, that it's a patient right, and also set up a financial reimbursement system for patients to stream into in the last three months of life. So this is all the rationale and, and uh, the description of our laws. And of course, it's very important to monitor this practice and 
who's monitoring the practice? The Federal Control and Evaluation Committee for Euthanasia. They review every reported case. And they also issue biennial reports of developments and activities. That's also one of their core uh, activities and responsibilities. Only they really don't operate that, that, latter, uh, that latter responsibility that well. I think it's insufficient. Uh, their analysis in their reports could have been much more comprehensive. They failed to do that. And also, they only know about reported euthanasia cases. They know, don't know what happens outside of it. So that's where our end-of-life decision wave surveys come in. We do, of course, the best we can to do a thorough analysis of the developments and study everything that surrounds these reported euthanasia cases. Of course, for time constraints, I won't be able to go into that too much because I will be focusing on euthanasia practice. But one last thing I'd like to say here is that this is not structurally embedded uh, or government commissioned, uh, which I find to be very un, uh, uh, unfortunate. Um, and that's actually the first recommendation I would do for any jurisdiction uh, that is contemplating legalizing euthanasia, to have uh, research in place that can really go into the depth of, of end-of-life care and, and the end-of-life landscape. So, onto the methodology of our surveys. So, uh, first thing is they're only done in Flanders, so they don't incorporate the Wallonian region. We know of there are certain cultural and practical differences between the two regions, which I will not go into now. We can chat about it later. Uh, but important to know only Flanders. Um, we, took a we, we took large samples of death, deaths via the death certificates in Flanders, and we did that in 1998, 2001, 2007, and 2013. And I put 2001 between brackets because in that uh, survey, we did that together with, uh, uh, with, some, uh, with other countries in Europe, and some questions that were in the other surveys were not uh, posed in that survey, so I can't really report about that here. So to get a, an idea of how big these samples are, they're 8 to 12% of all deaths within one calendar year, which uh, for social science standards is very high. And what we did was we uh, did a postal survey with the physicians certifying the death certificates. So the death certificates form the best possible denominator uh, to, uh, to estimate what's happening uh, at the end of life. And we did that with a, const, uh, with a validated questionnaire that's been repeatedly validated over the years, since 1990 up until now, every time again. And very important, we guaranteed absolute anonymity for the physicians uh, who participated. You can see the response rates are fairly high. And this is just uh, to show a bit uh, that this is our mailing procedure and uh, to illustrate a little bit the complexity of it and, and uh, well, the reason why we did it was to ensure anonymity and confidentiality. 
So the research group only received the end product, which was the anonymized database. Um, everything to do with the sampling and the, um, and the management of the survey was done by the Flemish Agency for Care and Health, who also managed death certificates. And we also had in between uh, a lawyer in our, in our case, uh, a trusted third party, who ensured that anonymity was achieved. So a very comprehensive procedure to uh, preserve anonymity. Now, end-of-life decisions, how do we define them? End-of-life decisions are broader than euthanasia. They're decisions to act or to omit an act at the end of a, life, of a patient's life, taking into account possible uh, life-shortening or intending it. In other words, medical decisions with a possible or certain life-shortening effect. And that can be broken down into different types of end-of-life decisions. You have the non-treatment decisions, decisions to uh, forego, so withdraw or withhold potentially life-prolonging treatment, such as resuscitation, uh, artificial respiration, artificial nutrition, and so on. You also have the intensified alleviation of pain and other symptoms. Uh, which is the use of drugs in such high doses that um, a life-shortening effect cannot be precluded. And a subtype of intensified alleviation of pain and symptoms is continuous deep sedation until death, which is, again, administering doses uh, um, to uh, sedate the patient until death. Then we come to euthanasia. Euthanasia is defined in our research as the administration of drugs with the explicit intention of hastening death at the explicit request of the patient. So voluntary, active life ending. Physician-assisted suicide, as I said, um, it's very, very rare in Belgium. So um, I think there were three cases last year uh, of physician-assisted suicide. So we're going to bundle those two euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide for the remainder. Now, we also have life-ending acts without explicit request, which is administration of drugs, explicit intention to hasten death, but not at the explicit request of the patient. Now, we've been able to uh, uh, publish our latest survey um, in some high-ranking journals, which is very fortunate. Um, and this is, these are the main results um, of our survey. So these are the incidence estimates of end-of-life decisions. So the left bar shows you all end-of-life decisions together. So uh, the percentage of deaths where at least one end-of-life decision was made. And you can see between 1998 and 2007 a small jump in the, in the incidence going from 39 to 47.8, and it stayed exactly the same in 2013. Other important things to, know, to note is that intensified alleviation of pain and symptoms, non-treatment decisions, those are the, actually the most prominent decisions at the end of life. And you can see euthanasia and also uh, life ending without request are actually the, uh, the less uh, or the least prevalent uh, uh, end of life decisions. What you can also see is euthanasia existing, being practiced before the law. That light blue bar 
the left light blue bar. And you can also see that uh, where uh, life fending without explicit request, we see a decrease after the euthanasia law. It went from 3.2% in 1998 to 1.8% in 2007, on to 1.7% in 2013. So that's not a significant decrease anymore after the euthanasia law. But again, I will be focusing totally and only on euthanasia. So here again, the same graph, but uh, enlarged. 1.1% uh, euthanasia before the euthanasia law, and just in the run-up to the legalization, so when there was a lot of uh, societal debate, a lot of political debate, a lot of uh, committee inquiries, uh, the rate dipped down to 0.3, whether that's because physicians didn't practice it or whether they were unwilling to report it to us, we don't know. But after the euthanasia law was enacted, we see the rate going from 1.9% in 2007 to 4.6% in 2013. This, is, uh, this corroborates actually the reports of the federal committee who give annual uh, rates and they saw between 2007 and 2013 a jump of 1,000 extra cases annually, coming from 400 to 1,400. Now, not every request for euthanasia, of course, is granted or leads to euthanasia. That's what you can see in the light blue bars. So in 1998, we had 2% of deaths where the patient had requested, explicitly requested life ending. And that went up to 3.5% in 2007 and increased further to 6% in 2013. You can see between 0.9% and 1.5% of of all deaths have ungranted euthanasia requests. Now, a keen observer will already have seen that the proportion of requests granted is similar between 1998 and 2007. That's peculiar because, well, if something is not legal, you would expect a granting rate to be very, very low. But in 1998, we see that over half, 53, did accept the euthanasia request, and that did not really change five years uh, into the euthanasia legislation. Where we did see a rise was after 2007, going to 77% of requests being granted. So who are the patients that are requesting euthanasia and getting euthanasia? So this is about euthanasia prevalence, and we're looking now at 1998 versus 2007. And we did the analysis, and there you can see where did the prevalence really go up. That's in the younger patient groups, less than 80 years old, and in the cancer groups. Okay, that's fair, and that's what is to be expected. But then, after 2007, look what happened. In every patient group, in every care setting, we see the rate of euthanasia rising, and fairly, fairly considerably. Now, where can we focus? Uh, 
what, what, is, what is happening? Is it in the number of requests or is it in the granting rate? Let's, let's see about that. And when we look at the requests, we see that between 1998 and 2007, again, not much difference. Only, again, in cancer patients has the rate of requests gone up. But again, when we go look between 2017 and 2013, again, we see this general rise of euthanasia requests. Maybe something else to note is the social gradient that, uh, that we see in these, um, um, in these figures, especially age and also education level. So the younger the patients, the higher the euthanasia, uh, well, uh, the higher the likelihood of euthanasia request, and also the higher the education level, the higher the likelihood of euthanasia request. Let's turn to the granting rate. This is the rate in 2007. I hope this is legible for everyone. Um, this is the 2007 granting rate ordered in ascending uh, order according to, uh, from low to high. So you can see in care homes, people with low education levels, people who are older than 80 years, non-cancer patients, in 2007 they had a low granting rate of below 40%. Patients with high acceptance rates were those with high edu education levels, uh, cancer patients and the younger patient groups. Okay, that's that's what we expect. But look in 2000, uh, in comparing to 1998, see a little difference. It's not significant. It's not statistically significant. But in 1998, the granting rates for non-cancer patients were higher than in 2007, and the granting rates for cancer patients were lower than in 2007. Then comparing 2007 to 2013, there we see a general rise in granting rates again. And the groups with the strongest increase are those who formerly, uh, formerly had, had low uh, acceptance rates. So people in care homes, people with low education levels, people older than 80 years, non-cancer patients. And we can see something striking in my eyes at least the granting rates in 2013 are now all closer to each other. You see, the line has become more flat. That means that there's some kind of trend toward equal odds that people uh, with conditions other than cancer are now uh, viewed as being eligible on a, well, on a par in their eligibility as cancer patients. Now, before we go to the discussion, um, I just wanted uh, to show you, we also asked about the reasons for not granting in 2007 and 13. And I believe this will be new for, for you um, to know that, for instance, patients very often die before a final decision is made, that the patient also often revokes his request or does not use um, does not use the fact that the physician uh, granted this request. Also, in around 20% legal requirements, 
uh, are, are not, were not met. But what I really wanted to show you here was the reasons that are external to the patient. So institutional policy that uh, forbids euthanasia within their walls, principal objections of the physician, and fear for legal consequences. These have all uh, evaporated, uh, let's say, in 2007. We still had physicians saying, uh, okay, I, was, uh, I wasn't allowed to perform euthanasia uh, by my hospital and so on, or I was in fear of legal consequences. This has all gone away now. So this shows that, that institutions um, have, so the healthcare institutions, including the Catholic healthcare institutions, have grown accustomed and, and have also um, allowed euthanasia to take place. Also, when we see the principal objections uh, subsiding, you can see that physicians are more accepting of the option of euthanasia, and they are also more trusting uh, that they will not be prosecuted if they follow the procedural requirements. Okay, euthanasia is definitely on the rise. We have more requests, which, uh, can be explained by the higher visibility and the higher positivity uh, of euthanasia in Belgium. Uh, in the media, uh, there's a lot of attention to it. There's a lot of positive attitude towards it. And also within people's own circles, by now everybody knows someone who received euthanasia. So the visibility of this practice is much, uh, much better. Um, and also people experience it in a positive way. There's also the cultural attitude shift with a focus on quality of dying and control, taking death out of the taboo sphere. And we can also not discount the generational shift with the baby boom generation coming into the age where they are dying, uh, more secularized, more individualized. But also higher granting rates. So that points to less reluctance, more trust and more positive experiences among the physicians themselves, among the healthcare institutions themselves, because there was a lot of reluctance in the first five years, as we saw, but now this has opened up. Uh, and also non-traditional cases, as I said, are now more often considered eligible uh, for uh, euthanasia as before. Okay, so central question, is Belgium on a slippery slope? There are two forms of slippery slopes, the logical slippery slope and the empirical slippery slope. The empirical slope uh, really points to the fact that, or to the assumption that uh, if you allow something, it will go its own way, and uh, in, in practice, you really can't, uh, can't control it. So there's the fear that there will be more life ending without request. Um, but we saw that this decreased after the euthanasia law in Belgium. Also, vulnerable patients are more at risk. And, uh, that's also an assertion that we often hear, but I myself, I've been working in, in, in the slippery slope uh, bioethical sphere, and I, I'm still to pinpoint what is a vulnerable patient. Um, of course, at the end of life, when you're suffering unbearably, you are vulnerable, of course. But in the literature, people talk about you know, the elderly, for instance, and we see that there is well, generally speaking, a disproportionately low use of euthanasia in those groups. Also, I must point out that in Belgium, we have full confidence in the decision-making capacity 
of physicians and in the thoroughness uh, that they exercise in making the decision together with the patient. This is not something that's conveyed in the media very often, but it is the situation in Belgium. Actually, what, uh, what we often hear is that physicians are more in a vulnerable position in, in that patients think that euthanasia is their right and they expect the physician to allow and to go along with the euthanasia request, which is not the case, but patients feel pressured into granting this request not to compromise or not to compromise their relationship with their with their patient and then you also hear euthanasia is spiraling out of control but uh, because of the uh, exponential rise but now there are now very recent signs that that the numbers are slowing down and of course uh, this is all conjecture but it could well be that uh, like a lot of societal phenomena and a lot of technologies and a lot of new products coming on the market, they all follow the same standard growth curve to some extent, where you have three phases, a lag phase, where uh, actually practice is lagging behind legislation in this case, and then a log phase where you get the exponential rise. That's actually where we're ending now, what we're ending into now. And then in the third phase, a stationary phase. But again, we're at the end of the log phase, uh, according to me, when you transpose the numbers uh, to this graph. It's all conjecture from here. Now, the logical slippery slope says that once you allow euthanasia for a specific group, the rest, all other groups will follow. It's like, Give someone a finger and they'll take your entire arm. Um, so, and people point to this argument by saying, okay, the law was extended to minors. But I find that a bit difficult because the core of the legislation remains unchanged. All we did was substitute the age criterion or take, take it away and just focus solely on competence. And actually in Belgium, this is really seen as a kind of cosmetic operation to the euthanasia law, I'm sorry to say. People also say, look, uh, since 2007, you know, things are blowing up. Uh, more people in different groups are receiving euthanasia. But actually, what is happening is that only now is the full scope of the existing euthanasia law being used. So before, uh, it was really uh, limited to terminally ill, uh, physically suffering uh, cancer patients, but now this is broadened to the limits of the euthanasia law. And that's where we're at now. Uh, we have a lot of fringe cases that test the boundaries of our euthanasia law. And of course, this is all you hear of in Australia, I, I presume. Uh, these fringe cases, the most controversial cases of all, so people, for instance, in early dementia, who, uh, who choose um, euthanasia before they lose the capacity to be eligible for euthanasia. Hugo Close was uh, one of the forerunners for that. He, he died in 2008. He was one of our most celebrated um, writers. Also people with severe chronic de depression. Uh, you will also have heard of the Verbesum twins. Uh, bo uh, born deaf and going blind congenitally um, and then not uh, suffering unbearably 
because they were not uh, no longer in the possibility to communicate with one another, and all they had was them uh, was each other. Also, not on Verhelst, uh, who had a, a series of failed sex change operations, wasn't happy with it, and uh, wasn't able to uh, to to live with himself in that way. Those are all people who received euthanasia. You will also have heard of the psychiatric inmate uh, Frank van den Bleek, um, a serial rapist and murderer, uh, who spent 30 years in jail without any psychiatric counseling whatsoever and asked for euthanasia because, uh, yeah, uh, for a lack of that. Now, his request was approved but revoked at the, at the last moment because it was really, really on the borderline of what is possible. I've also put on here advanced dementia, old age, being tired of life, and they, those are in gray because this is outside of the scope of the existing Belgian euthanasia law. If this is to become legal, then we'll need an extension of the law or a new law, uh, totally. And it's under debate. Um, both are under debate, actually for advanced dementia. People are mostly uh, in agreement that it should be possible. It's just very difficult to regulate it, and that's what's being discussed right now. And people of old age being tired of life, I think that is the last frontier uh, because it really detaches the suffering you have from the ailment you have because most people don't really have an, a serious and incurable condition apart from being immobile. Now, I can't go into those cases too much. I'm almost finished. Um, but I can just tell you a little bit about, to, to give some nuances uh, about these cases. And because they're highly publicized, I would say in a lot of cases there's insufficient background to form an informed opinion. There's inaccurate information and even in a lot of cases a distortion of the facts by disgruntled family members. Because why do these cases reach the media? Because the family is, uh, is unhappy about how things went and especially because they haven't been, um, haven't been consulted uh, adequately. I should also point out that these cases have been very highly debated in Belgium. It's not as if we, uh, we just let these things pass. We really debate them uh, to the core. These cases are also very, very rare. The vast majority, is, like, I, like I just showed you, is well within the accepted boundaries of what's possible under the law. And it's always a bit, it's always very difficult to put yourself in the place of someone with unbearable suffering if you haven't had it yourself, if you haven't felt it yourself. We can all imagine having excruciating pain. Imagine that being uh, incurable, uh, pain, uh, constant and unbearable. We know how we can form an opinion and, uh, about how that will be for us, but very few of us have experienced constant and unbearable psychological or existential suffering. So it's hard to identify with that and that's why it evokes so much uh, controversy. Also what's not conveyed in the media is that the time between the request and the actual decision is very, very long. It takes months and sometimes even years 
for a decision to be made, and also the amount of discussion and the careful consideration that goes into the, these decisions, it's, it's more inclusive than what, the, what the, the law actually requires. That's heavily underestimated. And most cases are also handled by increasing, increasingly experienced teams. I, I call them nodes for complex cases because uh, one way or the other, they, they do get referred to, uh, to these experienced people because their GPs, uh, the specialists, are, uh, they are always wanting to get a next opinion, a next opinion and another opinion, and why not consult the people who have already been faced with such a case. So this was just to mitigate any concerns about, um, about the slippery slope and about what is happening in Belgium. Um, and I hope I've been able to broaden your view uh, in, in that respect. So I had a piece about palliative care and euthanasia, but perhaps... Can I ask a question? Yeah, okay. So thank you.